The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. The History of North America podcast series is an incredible historical adventure that chronicles the thrilling, action-packed tale of a continent. I invite you to come along for the ride. Well, hello and welcome. Uh, today we have a very special guest. We have uh, Mr. Perry Ground. I wanted to mostly let him talk today, but I'll, I'll give a brief, short introduction. Perry is a member of the Turtle Clan, who is a, a member of the Onondaga Nation, and he's been telling stories for more than 25 years as a way to educate people about uh, his culture and beliefs and history of the Haudenosaunee. Perry, if you've ever seen him live or seen some of his videos, he's very energetic, he's fun, he engages uh, his audience and really lets them experience the story together. And uh, he's also a very accomplished uh, educator uh, working in colleges and grade schools uh, for years. So uh, without further ado, Perry, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? I know storyteller is just part of your life. I know there's there's so much more to that than in that in your identity. Absolutely. Well, first off, thanks for having me and uh, being part of the podcast. And I'm happy to share lots of information about Haudenosaunee storytelling. Uh, it is so very, very important to me uh, to share these stories and to educate people about who we are as, as Haudenosaunee people. Uh, when I started doing this uh, years and years ago, at um, when I was in college at Cornell University, and then uh, was working at Ganondagan State Historic Site, uh, right here in the Finger Lakes region, uh, I really saw how positive stories could be as a way to teach people about our history, about our culture. And it was a way that, for me, was the best way to communicate this kind of uh, teaching uh, and to really engage people. Like you said, I try to be engaging when I tell my stories uh, to really draw people into the story and uh, make them want to learn more, uh, leave them with a positive impression about Native Americans. And hopefully then they, they go and learn more on their own, read their own books, listen to podcasts, visit places like Ganondagan or Rochester Museum and Science Center or other museums, and, and really take the opportunity to learn more about Native peoples. So uh, telling stories is, is something that I, I absolutely, absolutely love to do. A little bit more about me. Uh, like you mentioned, I am Turtle Clan, and I am from Onondaga. And of course, the Onondagas, as I'm sure your listeners know, are part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. They're one of the original five nations that joined together about a thousand years ago when the Peacemaker brought us together, later joined by the Tuscaroras. Uh, my father is Seneca. Uh, he is from the Tonawanda Seneca Reservation. Uh, and um, But sometimes people will ask me, you know, are you half Seneca or do you say you're part Seneca? But following our traditional way of thinking, I never say that. I am only Onondaga because that's, of course, where my mom was from. 
And so, so I'm Turtle Clan Onondaga, but I grew up uh, in Niagara Falls. Uh, actually, my parents were divorced uh, when I was quite young, and my mother stayed in western New York instead of returning to the reservation. So I grew up in Niagara Falls. I went to LaSalle Senior High School, which no longer exists. It's now a Walmart <laughs> where, where my high school was. I don't know how I feel about that sometimes. Uh, when I walk into that Walmart, I'm like, this is where the football field was. And uh, I feel a little strange about that. But uh, um, but no, I grew up in, in uh, Niagara Falls, so a, a bit removed from, uh, from the reservation and from uh, my traditional culture. And uh, my mother had remarried. Uh, uh, an Italian man. He was first generation Italian. Uh, so honestly, I heard more Italian uh, spoken in the home and uh, with his parents than I did any native languages. Uh, so it was um, uh, for me uh, uh, an awakening when I was uh, in high school and then on into college at Cornell, where I went to school, uh, to be around native people more and to learn more about my own cultural heritage. Uh, and it was something that uh, really resonated with me. It was something that I didn't know had been missing from my life. And I was happy to find it. And I was happy to learn more about it and then to start to share it with other people. And it really was something that I found was positive for me uh, because uh, I was searching for what type of career I might go into. I thought I might be a veterinarian. It's very hard to be a veterinarian. <laughs> um, and uh, so when I found this uh, storytelling and this idea of education, uh, it really uh, captured me. And uh, I realized it was the thing that I wanted to do. It was the thing I was intended to do. And so telling the stories as part of educating people, um, I realized was was the way for me to go, to not be a standard classroom teacher. Um, in fact, I said for many, many years that I would never work in a school. Um, and then I took a job with the Rochester City School District, which I had for over 13 years. <laughs> but uh, uh, but I, I really didn't want to go into formal education like that. I wanted something more informal. So I spent a good part of my career working in museums and parks, uh, places like that. Uh, where the education was a little bit more informal and I could use my stories uh, as a tool uh, to educate our visitors. Um, so I've lived in a bunch of different places around New York State, worked in a, a bunch of different museums. Uh, I lived in Texas for a short time and in Colorado for a summer when I was in school. And, and all those experiences have really brought me back home uh, where I live now around Rochester and, um, and really just reminded me that, that stories are powerful. And stories uh, really explain who we are uh, as human beings. And uh, so I love uh, sharing the stories whenever and wherever I can. Was it like a gradual revelation or was it just one day like uh, a light went off, like you had an epiphany, like I want to do storytelling or, or was, was it just something you found yourself falling into or was it always just this desire that drew you to it? So it was kind of a gradual awakening to the idea of culture and the idea of, of that kind of cultural heritage that had been missing from my life. Like I said, I had always visited the reservation, always visited my family on both my mother's side and my father's side of the family. So holidays and school breaks and things like that. We lived not too far away from the Tuscarora Reservation where I grew up in Niagara Falls. So we would visit there for field days and friends and picnics and whatever. So I was always exposed to it. 
but you know, as, as a kid, I wanted to play lacrosse and, and baseball <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and ride bikes and, and, uh, you know, be a kid. Uh, but as I got a little bit older and I started learning more, I was the one in the family that wanted to sit with my great grandfather or with my grandmother or with my great aunt and listen to the stories that they were telling, ask questions about who we are as native people. What did this symbol mean? What does this story mean? Why is this building in this place? Who are these people that are from our family history and things, things like that. So I was always the one that wanted to learn more about that. Um, and, and as I got older, I wanted to learn more and more. When I went to school at Cornell, I had the very fortunate opportunity to work with Steve Fadden. And Steve uh, is Mohawk storyteller. His family, the Fadden family, is a great and well-known family of storytellers. His uncle Ray is uh, the godfather of Haudenosaunee storytelling. And um, uh, so listening to him, uh, watching him tell his stories, uh, it was it was a little bit of an epiphany. Uh, seeing how everyone responded to his storytelling. He also has a very active and engaging style. In fact, some of my style is modeled after his. Um, and uh, so uh, <clears throat> it was uh, something that I realized that, that I could also do uh, in the way that he did it. And then in my uh, after my freshman year at school, I had the opportunity to work at Ganondagan and work with another storyteller, uh, Marion Miller, a Seneca woman, from the corn planter Seneca Reserve. She always traced her family and always said that she was corn planter Seneca. Mm. And of course, corn planter uh, being a Seneca chief had been given land in Pennsylvania, which was a reserve in Pennsylvania for many years. Uh, you may have covered that in another podcast of yours. It's it's on my list. Uh, okay. we, went to, we went to the Ganondagan premiere of Lake of Betrayal, the, the film. And uh, okay. yes, we're not quite to the 1960s yet, but yeah, it will unfortunately... Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, be an episode eventually, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, she traced her family all the way back to, to the Revolutionary War time. And when Corn Planter took uh, the land grant in uh, what is now known as Pennsylvania, it was Pennsylvania then also, um, and was for a long time the only uh, reservation or reserved Native lands in Pennsylvania for any Native Americans. So uh, when I say my father's from Tonawanda, uh, that means that he comes from a reservation that is a little bit different than the Seneca Nation at Cattaraugus and Allegheny. If somebody says that they are from the Corn Planter Reserve in Pennsylvania, that's a little bit different. Of course, if you are Seneca Cayuga from Oklahoma, that's a bit different because they were removed uh, back in the 1800s. So people identify from these places that they're from. But working with Marion and the traditional stories that she told, again, it just really informed me uh, about the power of stories and the way that they could be used as an educational tool. So it was um, uh, a little bit of an epiphany, uh, you know, that light bulb moment, uh, but uh, it was a few light bulbs kind of flashing, <laughs> flashing, flashing until I got in front of a group um, and told a story and everybody went, wow that was really good. And I learned a lot. And then they had a whole bunch of other questions. And I said, oh, uh, this might be a thing <laughs> and a thing that I could do. And um, and off I went from there. Great. Why do you think that oral histories and tales are so important to your community? And 
this is this is something you know people think oh it's it's just for for native american people but you know histories are important to people from any culture and whether we realize it or not i mean you know we grow up in america with stories of snow white cinderella you know those are our germanic you know heritage stories as well and, and you know you can even go back to western civilization you know aesop's fables and things like that you know stories have been a part of every culture from all time but why why do you think that they're they're so treasured and should be held on to and and shared well, stories are very human, like you were just saying. Uh, they Stories are one of the things that make us human beings. And stories have been told around the world forever, uh, from the very first humans. That's why when we say we find cave drawings and things like that, those are stories. Those are stories that people were recording in that way. And then the oral tradition of telling stories changes in different cultures at different times. And a lot of it is based on language and, and uh, language acquisition, written language, and the way that people have materials to record their stories and, and their languages. Uh, and like here now today, uh, we're talking via Zoom and you're recording and, you know, you can edit and you can put it up on a podcast. And, and we have new media that we can use to record stories. But in essence, we are drawing a picture on a cave wall right now. Uh, our cave wall is just electronic <laughs> and, and different uh, than what people had available to them thousands of years ago. Uh, so uh, stories evolve over time uh, in different cultures because of that way that they can record their language. And now here in the 20th and 21st centuries, as the world speeds up and we have these new ways of telling stories, there are groups of people whose language wasn't recorded in those ways for a long time. A lot of people don't know that most Haudenosaunee languages were not written down until the very beginning of the 20th century. So we, our language has only been written and their stories and our history and our culture has only been recorded on paper uh, for a little bit more than a hundred years. And most of that recording was done by non-native people, uh, anthropologists, historians, uh, uh, cultural historians that came into our communities and started to record things, whether it was to write a book or get a PhD or whatever it might have been, uh, that, that they wanted to study us and uh, record this information. And oftentimes they said, we have to write this down and record it before it's lost because the native people were evolving and we are human beings and we are changing just like, like everybody else. Uh, so uh, I think stories remain very important in our native communities because we haven't had the same history of written language and books and, you know, film and ways of recording our stories that other people have had. Uh, as you mentioned, like Grimm's fairy tales or Aesop's fables or those kinds of stories, those have been written down for hundreds, if not thousands of years, um, <clears throat> you know, in the cultures that they come from. So people can access them in a different way. In our communities, the only way to access the stories for a long time, including into the 20th century, was to listen to somebody tell them. So they remain vital because that was the only way to get them. Uh, was uh, through the oral uh, tradition. Sadly, when people did start to write them down, that oral tradition uh, kind of went away uh, from, I would say, the early 1900s, definitely the 1930s. Uh, by then, people really were not telling stories anymore. They were starting to write them down. 
uh, the world was changing, uh, you know, things like World War One and the Great Depression and World War Two. They obviously affected Native people, just like they affected everyone around the world. Um, and so that uh, if you if you're struggling to survive in the Great Depression, um, you just don't have time to tell stories. You, you, you're farming, you're struggling to earn money to get food, uh, feed your family, whatever it might be. So the tradition of storytelling uh, kind of went away. There's a few people that we recognize, like Ray Fadden, who I mentioned, uh, who continued to tell stories, but the number of storytellers declined tremendously. And then into the uh, 1970s and definitely the 1980s, into the 90s, there's a resurgence in cultural identity. And so we see people starting to, to pick up that mantle of storytelling again uh, with people like Steve and Marion, myself, and other storytellers um, that that, uh, that I know um, that, that we're trying to revive this art of storytelling uh, and to continue it today. So if you could take us back in time, um, traditionally, pre-contact or maybe shortly after contact, how and when were stories told? Who told them? You know, what type, what season of the year were they told? You know, could, could anybody do it? Could you be a novice or did you have to be a respected elder? Uh, how, how did it usually work? Well, the art of oratory among the Haudenosaunee was always uh, kind of revered, uh, definitely recognized as, a, as a, a very desirable quality in a person uh, that could stand up and speak and, and uh, say, uh, recite our prayers and tell our stories and give speeches in councils and things like that. That was always a, a kind of a, a very notable quality in a person, which is kind of strange because talking a lot in our community is very frowned upon. <laughs> so if you just, you know, talk all the time, well, that's bad. But if you stand up and give a good speech, oh, that's good. So how do you practice? <laughs> <laughs> being a good storyteller if you're not supposed to talk all the time. Uh, and uh, so it's kind of a little uh, dichotomy going on there. Uh, but historically, uh, really anybody could tell stories. Uh, it was often men because the storytellers would travel from place to place, uh, particularly in the wintertime. Uh, but because stories were the way to pass information from generation to generation, Everybody told stories and everybody knew the stories and everybody listened to the stories in the winter when a professional, if we would, a storyteller came from place to place, from longhouse to longhouse, from village to village, from nation to nation. That person was uh, revered in some ways. I mean, think about wintertime in upstate New York, how long you would be trapped inside of your longhouse uh, because of the cold weather, the snow. And the struggle to find food and, and really just to survive through the winter. So when somebody comes into your house and says, I'm going to tell you stories all night long tonight. That was like such an amazing thing for people to be able to hear. Uh, and uh, whomever was traveling around like that was probably like me, a professional, if you would, at it. Uh, I am a professional. I get paid for what I do. Uh, uh, and that person would receive gifts and, and get lodging and food, and maybe they would mend his clothes or, or whatever it might be. Uh, women could tell stories also, uh, but it was often men, from what we understand. Um, but, uh, uh, but everybody listened. Uh, the stories weren't just for children. It was like, hey, kids, go listen to that guy you know, at the end of the house, and I'm going to go cook food or make tools at the other end of the house. Everybody listened. The stories were for everybody. And so because everybody heard them, 
and they hurt them over and over, you know, day after day or week after week or year after year, everybody knew these stories or at least knew a bit of them. So at other times of the year, you'd have parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles who would still tell these stories to children, especially the lesson stories, to remind them about the behaviors that were expected within the community. Um, so there's a, one story that has uh, kind of gone away. People don't tell. I've written my own version of it about a, a creature, a, a scary creature, um, and it's called the gluttons. And it's about three boys who just eat, 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 and they eat all the food. And then this creature uh, comes to them and he has a wooden spoon and he beats the kids with it if they eat too much and things like that. So that would have been a type of story that people would have told all the time. And anybody would have told that story if they saw kids eating too much, like, hey, don't eat too much or this guy, you know, this creature will come and beat you with the wooden spoon. And the way he's depicted is like with crazy hair and he's very skinny and his ribs are thickening out. And, and uh, you know, so he's kind of like it's, it's a human-ish <laughs> creature, but he comes and, and he, he will, you know, whack the kids with a wooden spoon if they're eating too much. So that kind of lesson story would have been told all the time and, and anybody would have told it, you know, an uncle would have, you know, seen younger kids, you know, just eating too much and been like, hey, you know, he's going to come get you. You're going to get the spoon, you know, and, and it, it would have been a lesson story. Uh, but everybody would have known that kind of story. So anybody might have told it. Um, so you, you have that kind of everyday story. And then you have the almost like what I do today, performance of stories. Uh, and there were people that traveled around performing stories uh, a long time ago. I'm not going to turn my computer, but I have a first edition um, uh, Scundy Wundy on my shelf uh, back behind me. And uh, obviously, Arthur Parker wrote down a lot of the stories. Like you said, it was in his day and age, it was falling out. And so he wrote them down. Um, but when you look at stories like this, <laughs> <laughs> and I hold up a book <laughs> that I have right next to me. <laughs> How when storytellers told their tales, was there artistic license to change things up a little bit? Or did they try and stick as close as possible? Because I understand in performance, you need to, to liven things up. And, you know, we, we have different versions of stories that have been written down, depending if, you know, it's from Seneca Nation or Mohawk Nation or anything like that. So was it oh, acceptable for things to change or did it just naturally evolve that way? I think with any kind of performance art, you're going to see this kind of natural evolution. Um, you know, somebody will sing a song one way and somebody will sing a song slightly different um, just because that's their style. And the stories are open to change and interpretation uh, all the time. There are some people that feel like you should tell it the same way, the same words, every single time. Uh, I don't feel that way. Uh, I feel like stories are, are alive, they are dynamic, they are fluid, and that they need to adapt to the time and sometimes to the place uh, where you might be. So uh, I've been overseas to tell my stories. And if I'm overseas and I'm talking about, you know, the deciduous forest that we live in, they might not know what I'm talking about. You know, when I, when I say, you know, the possum did something, they're like, what is a possum? They're like, you know, because maybe they just don't, you know, they have a different word in their language or whatever it might be. So you have to be able to adjust and you have to be able to, uh, to fit to your audience uh, the story in the best way. 
So uh, even when I read through the old versions of the story uh, written by Parker uh, or by uh, Jesse Cornplanter or even by uh, researchers like Speck, uh, who, who wrote down lots of, of Native American stories, uh, they each brought their own experiences and, and their own uh, uh, understandings. Uh, maybe it was translated also from one of the traditional languages into English. And so whomever was doing the translating was making some adjustment as well. Uh, so uh, it um, there's always room for change uh, in, in the stories. Now, there are some stories, though, uh, like the creation story, like the peacemaker story, uh, like the story of Handsome Lake, uh, really foundational stories among the Haudenosaunee that inform us who we are. Those uh, shouldn't change uh, as much. There's always gonna be a little wiggle room in there, uh, the way that you might tell a story, but they really shouldn't change that much. Although I was uh, actually teaching about the creation story uh, just this week in my classes at RIT, and I was uh, telling the students that and when you read all the different versions that exist, there are variations and some are, are major variations, some are minor variations, but there's some pretty major variations in, in the stories that are told. And it might have to do with the place uh, for instance, in the Mohawk versions, there's often talk about the mountains, and one of the twins actually uh, does something uh, with uh, what becomes what we call false face masks, um, and uh, which is very sacred to the Haudenosaunee, but it's part of our creation story. And so they have that to do with mountains, because of course the Mohawks lived in the Adirondack Mountain region, so that's part of their story that is not much told in the Seneca versions of the story because of course here it's a little bit hilly but more of a flatland and, and farming Genesee River Valley kind of area Finger Lake region so we don't have the same kind of mountains like they do so where people live might inform the way that they tell the story a little bit more so you're going to find variations like that from story to story but the essence of the story should remain the same when I tell the story of the black bear losing his long tail a story that I'm very well known for telling. That story is probably one of the most common stories across Native America. Um, that story, the story of the Big Dipper, the Great Bear up in the sky, uh, that's a very common story across uh, North America. Uh, stories of Pleiades are very common. But in each version, if I hear the Cheyenne version or the Lakota version or the Navajo version or the Haudenosaunee or the Cherokee version, whatever it might be, there's always variations to it. And maybe it's the fox that does something. Maybe it's the coyote that does something. Maybe it's the bear that does something. Uh, uh, but there are these variations. And, and that's okay um, because the essence of the story is the same, that the bear gets up in the sky <laughs> and the hunters are chasing him and that they're still up there protecting us today. That is the, the essence of the story. And uh, that that doesn't change. Well, Perry, I would I would not consider you an elderly person. Uh, you, you don't strike me as, as well advanced in years. Um, but my question is, are there young people today that you know about that have a desire to continue on what you're doing? Because obviously any profession or skill is just one generation removed from being lost. So how do you, I, I don't know if the word is identify people that have that desire like you did when you were younger or try and draw that out of people to want to continue uh, on in the coming generations. So how do you raise people up or are you doing that? It's always my most fevered hope that uh, uh, not only that I tell stories and I educate people, 
but that I inspire the next generation of storyteller. And um, no, unfortunately, right now there there isn't uh, that next person uh, or or group of people. Uh, maybe uh, some people have heard me and they sort of like it. I I worry a little bit. Uh, when I tell my stories, because a few people have said to me, like, I'd like to tell stories, but I can't do it as well as you can. And I say that you do it in your own way. I never tell. Don't compare yourself to me or really any other storyteller. If you're inspired by me, if you use some of my style, if you like the way that I tell them, whatever, like, that's great, like, wonderful. But don't feel like you have to do it the same way that I do. Find your own voice and find your own best way of telling stories because maybe somebody who lives on the reservation uh, or near their traditional territory, they've heard the stories more from grandma, from grandpa, from auntie, from uncle, whatever it might be. But then they've also seen performance like what I do or, or that others do. And then they are inspired to tell stories. But uh, my most fervent hope is, is to inspire a new generation of storytellers so that this does not go away. Uh, that there's always someone telling stories and uh, it, it's challenging not only because um, you know I can I can only perform so many times in so many places and they can only hear the story so many times from me um, before they get bored with it but because of the technology that exists today uh, if I was if I was 15 or 18 years old today with the media that we have I don't know if I'd be a storyteller. Uh, maybe I'd be a podcaster or maybe maybe I'd uh, be doing uh, something else, but maybe I would be. And, and if I was learning to be a storyteller today, maybe I'd be learning to tell it in a, in a digital format as opposed to uh, uh, you know, a performance uh, format uh, and standing in front of groups of people. So uh, I think we need to inspire people to want to share these stories. Uh, but I'm also trying to inspire them to tell the story in their way. And if that means uh, through a podcast, uh, on Instagram, uh, with artwork, uh, whatever it might be, uh, tell the story in your way. But keep the stories alive and, and keep telling them. So I guess this kind of ties in. Um, our listeners know that, um, and it's very good advice to take no matter what your cultural background is, is that um, when People from the Six Nations make a decision. They're looking six gen seven generations backwards and seven generations forward. So, and it makes it so hard because we look at one generation backwards and see how much the world has changed. We look two generations backwards and it's like, they didn't even have cars or electricity. And, <laughs> and like, how can we possibly look seven generations forward? But I understand we have no idea what the world would look like, but what is your hope to see uh, among the Onondaga community or other other nations in seven generations from now? Where do you want to see society taken? I'm assuming storytelling is still a part of that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the idea of the seven generation concept, uh, you know, because when it was created, when the peacemakers with us and people are thinking like, you know, that we'll make these decisions for future generations, change was so slow, very slow. And I talk about this uh, whenever I, I lecture, I talked to my students about it just yesterday. When we think about Native Americans, I often break us into three time periods, uh, kind of these categories of ways that we've existed. And uh, one of the ways is in the pre-contact, like you were talking about earlier, you know, 600 years ago, prior to Europeans coming here to live, 
We're going to leave the Vikings out of it for now. But, you know, the French, the English, the Dutch coming here to build colonies, to build, they wanted to come here. They wanted to settle. They wanted to trade. They wanted to introduce their ideas and their goods uh, to Native Americans. And it caused a, a giant change. Prior to that, in the pre-contact era, change was very, very, very slow. And so I think to think seven generations in the future was easier because people you would think would still be using stone tools or deerskin clothes or living in a bark longhouse in a communal kind of fashion. So it was easier to think like if I'm making a decision based on culture, on identity, on the politics of the day, seven generations in the future, uh, it won't be that different. And generations also were shorter back then, uh, you know, maybe a, a 20 year span 20 to 25 year span for a generation as opposed to the 35 to 40 year span that we have now. So uh, generationally, uh, seven generations wasn't as long in the future either as we think of it today. Um, and so I think all those things affect us because then when we get to the colonial era, uh, when those Europeans come to settle here and then up to the, about the Revolutionary War time, we have this very fast, very rapid and very seismic change in people's uh, living in their lifestyle, the materials that they have, the clothes that they wear, the food that they eat, um, but also in the thinking that they have. Uh, there's this whole new country that started called the United States and religion comes in, things like money, uh, all these different kinds, you know, land ownership, uh, things like that. All these concepts that we had never had before are now introduced and become prevalent uh, across uh, Turtle Island uh, and definitely in our communities. So there is this uh, seismic change in, in, um, in people's uh, living and, and in their thinking. Uh, and so then it changes how we think about seven generations in the future, because now, uh, you know, into the late 20th century and into the 21st century, whew, we've really speeded up and the world is changing uh, so much faster. So when I think about the future and I think about this seven generations concept, to me, the idea is to hold on to those traditions that are very important, that inform us who we are. Even though I am not a language speaker, language is one of them. I wish I was a language speaker. I wish I had the opportunity to learn Onondaga or Seneca or any of our languages. But where I live and where the classes are held, and they, I don't have that opportunity. I don't have the time because I'm telling stories all the time or teaching or whatever it might be. So it's it's uh, it, it's. I wish I could make more time to do that. I wish I, I it was something that I could do and then pass on to other people as well. But I know that there are people doing it. So when I see it happening, when I see, you know, language departments springing up within different tribes, it's like, wow, this is great. Like there will be people that will keep this language alive. So keeping those kinds of traditions alive, that is my hope for seven generations in the future, because seven generations from now, they might be in flying cars or going to the moon on a regular basis or whatever the case might be. You know, like 1960s science fiction was like we're supposed to be doing now. If you go back to 1950s and 1960s science fiction, we were all supposed to be going around in flying cars and traveling to the moon and we're weirdly talking to our watches, which actually is something that we can do today. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, all, all those kinds of uh, future visions about things that people would have. I'm more worried about the cultural traditions that we will continue to have. 
And if seven generations from now, people are still telling these traditional stories, but in the way that the technology allows them to tell them at the time, then we're still okay. Then, then we're, we're doing good. And they can tell them on the moon if they want to. <laughs> it doesn't matter where. <laughs> so Perry, uh, I guess my final question is, if somebody is listening to this and they're like, this guy is awesome. How can I reach out to him? How can he come to my community, school, or uh, church, wh- whatever? And, and I don't know wh- where you're at, sewing club. Uh, how can they reach out to you and hire you to, to come and share? Sure. And all groups I've, I've talked to, uh, uh, including sewing clubs, <laughs> everybody reached out to me. Uh, historical societies and museums and parks and schools, of course, uh, all those folks reach out to me. The best and easiest way to get a hold of me is actually through my Facebook page. Uh, since we are social media creatures these days, um, I have a Facebook page. I actually have two of them. Uh, one of them is uh, called Talking Turtle Stories. And that page is my most active page. Uh, and I publish my stories on that page. I have written about 130 stories, traditional stories on that page. And I write them in serialized form, uh, going uh, back <laughs> to uh, an old way of, of telling stories. Um, <clears throat> and I illustrate them with Native American artwork. So people can go to Talking Turtle Stories on Facebook or they can look me up just by my name. My other page is just Perry Ground. And so they can find uh, my written stories on there and also my contact information uh, uh, that I will be able to come uh, out to schools um, and uh, museums and parks and sewing clubs and other such places. So people can always contact me there. And then I usually just share people with uh, from there, my email address and you know for booking me, uh, we go from there. But the easiest way to get me is, is through my, my Facebook page. And maybe sometime soon, my daughter who attends RIT and studies new media will finally make a website for me <laughs> because that's something that I don't know how to do. <laughs> and uh, we, we do have a lot of listeners um, that live that, that are um, Six Nation members uh, from, from all Six Nations that write in. And so if you're listening to Perry today and you've always been like, I want to be a storyteller, uh, f- look him up, find him out, uh, knock down his door and see what you yeah. can do to, to further uh, enriching other people's lives. Absolutely. And I, I hope that there are you know people like that that want to tell the stories. And, and like I say, there are people that are inspired by my storytelling. I feel great about that. And there are people that are happy that the stories are, are still being told. Uh, and, and I hope that somebody, uh, a, a, younger, a person younger than me, I'd like to believe I'm not an elder yet. I'd like to say I'm in the uncle category. I'm not uh, that young, but I'm not uh, I'm not a grandfather yet. Uh, but put me in the uncle category, maybe. But um, uh, that uh, the biggest thing about becoming a storyteller is is learning the stories. And whether that's if you hear them, uh, if you read them, uh, if you watch them online in different ways, uh, uh, learn the stories. Uh, I always tell people the most important part about uh, being a storyteller is being a good listener. If we don't listen to the stories, and that can include listening to them in any way <laughs> that we have available to us today, uh, but if we don't listen to the stories, if we don't uh, learn them and retain them and remember them, then we can't tell them. And so reading them on my Facebook page or in books uh, by Parker or Corn Planter or whomever has written these down, uh, that's the way to learn them today. And read every version that you can uh, of the story. 
uh, that's also important. Uh, so I have uh, many different sources for many of the stories. I just recently discovered a, a, an unpublished manuscript that is in a museum in Canada. And so as restrictions are lifting, um, I hope uh, this uh, either this semester or this summer is to go and research that unpublished manuscript of stories. Uh, there could be gems hidden in there, the stories we haven't heard in, in decades. And so I can't wait to get my hands uh, on that manuscript uh, to, to read through some of these stories. But but you got to read all these versions. You got to have them fixed in your mind in some way and then tell them and tell them in your own voice uh, is what I always uh, tell people and tell them in the best way that you can. There is no bad way to tell a story. Just tell it. And maybe the first time it's not perfect. Maybe the hundredth time isn't perfect. But when you get to a thousand or two thousand or three thousand like me, it gets a lot better. You know, I'm a better storyteller today uh, than I was when I was starting 30 years ago. Uh, but um, but it took me a while to get here. So just get out there, practice and tell stories uh, that keeps them alive. That's the important part. Well, Perry, thank you so much for sharing your life uh, with us today. And uh, I, I feel like I've learned a lot and I hope that everyone else has as well. Well, I'm so glad to be part of the, the podcast. And, uh, you know, I hope that people will come out and, and see stories now that uh, some COVID protocols are lifting. Uh, I am getting more public uh, shows, uh, although I do uh, do virtual shows as well. Uh, so uh, you were saying if your listeners were interested in having me, I can come to them. I can come to them virtually. However, it might be uh, we're all adjusting to new normals uh, and uh, there's new normals for storytelling uh, also. But lots of shows here in the coming year. So I hope to see lots of people out there enjoying great stories. The great thing about a podcast is this thing gets published and, you know, it'll, it'll be out there for years. So, you know, if hopefully if the servers are still working decades from now, people will be <laughs> like, what are they all talking about? And uh, it, it'll just be a, a bad dream for everyone. I, I hope so. I hope so. Because it was, uh, it, you know, that that's something that changed how we tell stories also. Uh, I, I often tell how I had this idea about five years ago for virtual visits to a museum and that people could call in by Skype or uh, Google Hangouts. Zoom didn't exist at that time. And I was trying to sell this idea to teachers. And they all said, this sounds interesting, but I don't know how to do that. Like, how would my classroom visit a museum? I'm like, you put it on your smart board and they're, and they're, they're, like, they're, I just don't get it. Like, and now of course, you know, pandemic hit and they're all like, well, we zoom all the time and we go here, we do that, you know? So it's, it, uh, if there's any silver lining, it has enabled us to connect with people more. It's, it's literally made the world smaller. Uh, I, I did a, a show last year for the university of Colorado. Uh, which I never would have done, you know, uh, until people learned how to connect, uh, whether it's by Zoom or, or some other platform, but to connect virtually. So sharing this story in this way, um, uh, it, it's a it's a new normal uh, for us and uh, uh, something that we're all adjusting to. But but this is why I say anyone that wants to tell stories, there's so many ways to tell them, uh, whether it's with a written word, visually, orally, like I do it. Uh, tell your story in your way, um, but keep telling stories. All right. Well, thank you so much, Perry, and have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks so much.